Hey y'all, thanks for joining me for episode 15. This is the fourth episode in the Everything I Know About series, where I give bite-sized knowledge on a variety of topics and tip my hat to those who have helped me along the way. So this episode focuses on my third mentor uh, that I worked with in my graduate program, Ellen Dore Watson. You can learn a bit more about her from a link I've provided in the show notes. So just a little bit of background on where I was at this stage of my graduate career um, and why I wanted to work with Ellen. I really wanted to work with her because she was different than most of the other mentors in the faculty in that she was a translator. So she wasn't just a poet and not that that's a bad thing. I technically am just a poet. Um, But translation requires a lot of different skills, um, many of which aren't used when you're writing your own poetry, and some of which can be translated, if you will, into that skill set as well. The other reason was she she was just a very free spirit, um, very lively, and I certainly wanted to work with someone with that much energy. And she had also worked with another poet I really admire, Adelia Prado, which if you want to learn more about Adelia as well, I'll provide a link in the show notes if you want to search her up a little bit, kind of going off of what we talked about yesterday, being curious, right? So at this point in my graduate career, I needed to work on a thesis, um, so a long essay, about 15 to 20 pages as well as prep poems for my final semester in which I'd put together a full-length poetry manuscript. So in short, this was the revision semester, not only of my own poetry, but also of this thesis paper, which while not huge, 15 to 20 pages isn't terrible as far as theses go. They're usually about 50. Um, It was still a lot that I needed to put into those pages, as well as a lot of revision and a lot of thinking about the future and how I would revise my work to put it into a manuscript to prepare for that. So last episode, I talked a bit about some exercises for revision, but now I want to talk a bit more about the nitty gritty of that process. So my other mentors gave me guidance as to how to revise my poems. And while I wrote short essays in my first two semesters, In this particular one, as I mentioned, my thesis really needed to be polished. It wasn't like a regular class where you hand in one essay, you can revise it if you want for like for a better grade. This one, I, it really needed to be polished. So Ellen saw at least, you know, three, four or more drafts of that paper. Um, and I have to say she was very direct, and this is sort of where the nitty-gritty part comes in because unlike my other previous mentors who made suggestions and gave me guidance, Ellen rewrote some sections to show me guidance. She wouldn't just make the suggestion, she would rewrite. And one time, actually, she crossed out pretty much every line of a single poem, which essentially told me I needed to start over. Um... In no uncertain terms, right? I mean, other mentors earlier in my career may have said, well, maybe come back to this later, whereas she just crossed everything out. And, you know, it it hurts a little bit, but sometimes you need to be a little bit hurt to grow. <clears throat> now, 
as I mentioned also earlier, there's a lot of, now that we're in the fourth episode of this pod podcast series, there's going to be a lot of references to other episodes within the series. Um, so I gave some exercises for revision, um, not uh, particularly in the last episode, episode 14, but now I want to talk more about not being so gentle with yourself. As I mentioned, Ellen was very direct. And again, sometimes you need to be hurt in order to grow. Now, not excessively, but, you know, no pain, no gain, right? There, <clears throat> that cliche is around for a reason. There is a lot of truth to it. One thing that I really learned was I needed to be willing to scrap a section of a piece or even the whole thing and start completely over. This was actually really hard for me to do at the time. And it's a lot of, it's very hard for a lot of different artists because you work so hard sometimes on the first draft or the first iteration of a creative piece and then to take something you've actually worked on and just throw it out is really, really difficult, but sometimes it needs to be done for the overall piece um, to thrive and for you to grow as an artist. I also, in addition to Ellen, um, after my graduate program, I did take some cues from the writer Anne Lamott. In her book, Bird by Bird, she has a an essay called Shitty First Drafts. Um, it's a really great essay. It's a funny title, and it is a funny essay, but there, I think, is a lot of wisdom in what she says. And now I'm going to read um, the first, a portion of the, her first paragraph of this essay. She says, about shitty first drafts, she says, all good writers write them. This is how they end up with good second drafts and terrific third drafts. People tend to look at successful writers, writers who are getting their books published and maybe even doing well financially, and think that they sit down at their desks every morning feeling like a million dollars, feeling great about who they are and how much talent they have and what a great story they have to tell, that they take in a few deep breaths, push back their sleeves, roll their necks a few times to get all the crinks out, and dive in, typing fully formed passages as fast as a court reporter. But this is just the fantasy of the uninitiated. I know some very great writers, writers you love who write beautifully and have made a great deal of money, and not one of them sits down routinely feeling wildly enthusiastic and confident. Not one of them writes elegant first drafts. So when I first read this, um, again, it was sometime after my graduate program, I knew this to be true just as a writer myself. I knew I never wrote elegant first drafts, maybe out of the hundreds of pieces that I've written over my lifetime, you know, maybe once I have I written a draft and the final product wasn't that much different. It came out almost fully formed. That almost never happens. It's, it's almost a fluke. Um, so I knew elegant first drafts are really a thing of myth. They don't really exist. But to have an accomplished writer put it into words was also refreshing. You know, I, even though I had my MFA, you know, a newly minted MFA at the time, and I did consider myself a writer, you know, I didn't have a book at the time. And I certainly wasn't making loads of money off of my writing. I'm still not, and that's okay. But to know someone who, 
makes a living off of her writing to say this and to know she was in the same boat as I am was really nice. You know, it's always nice when you're going through a struggle or struggle with a certain area in your life. It's always nice to know you're not alone. So you might be thinking, you know, how how can I just do that? How can I write the shitty first draft without, I don't know, you know, being sort of intimidated by it? And my advice is let your shitty first drafts be what they want to be. Let whatever needs to come out simply come out. Um, One way to do this is let it be what it wants or let it, the piece be its own organism. Now this sounds really weird, but rough drafts often have a mind of their own. If you've written for anything, you know, in undergraduate, high school, or even if you're a creative writer or work in another medium like painting or sculpture, you know that a lot of times you have an idea in mind and have an end point and then many different things happen over the course of actually putting a piece together. Um, So in that vein, you know, you may have an idea for the structure of a play or a novel or an artwork, but for some reason it just doesn't work and you don't know why. And I'd encourage you not to strong arm your piece to fit your original idea. I mean, you can do it. Um, I have, but the finished piece, I can tell you, will suck if you do this. Just go with it. Let the piece guide you, which may sound very woo-woo, but if you're trying something based off an original idea and you just don't feel it, you know, it's not vibing with you, it's not working, you don't like it, try something else. Um, As I like to say, grow with the work and let the work teach you. Because through the process of revision, you will learn, right? Things that work for you, things that don't. And as a result of this experimentation, your piece or pieces that you're working on will develop as well. And you grow in such that you add more tools to your creative toolbox, whether it applies to writing or visual art or podcasting or some other medium. And I I really like that metaphor of the toolbox because you can fill it with all different types of things, you know? So for myself as a writer, some things in my toolbox are, um, as mentioned in the last episode, maybe Xing out unnecessary or boring words. Um, Another tool could be rhyming. Um, If you're a painter, maybe some tools in your toolbox are paint splattering. Uh, Maybe another tool is painting with found objects like sticks or leaves. So just adding these different tools and techniques can really help you when you're stuck or when you want to revise a piece. Um, And through doing all of this, you learn what techniques work for you, um, whether it be certain colors or writing at a certain time of the day or writing in certain forms or painting in certain forms or or canvas sizes. Um, And your work also blossoms and develops as you do. Um, And I would also encourage you to sort of throw questions at your piece. Um, With what you have in front of you, you know, wonder like, hey, do you want to be in a form? Do you want more blue instead of so much red? Um, You know, it's it's a hard thing, right? Um, but it is a lot of play. While it is a nitty-gritty process and sometimes ruthless, 
there is a lot of play and experimentation involved, which can be a lot of fun. And I'll talk a bit more about play in uh, tomorrow's episode, episode 16. Another way to go about revision is uh, one way that Anne Lamott suggests is a sort of three draft process. Now this applies to writing. She's talking mostly about writing, but I think it can also be applied to painting and, you know, adapted to other media as well. So the first draft she calls the child's draft. Now, children, write they're messy, they're loud, they can sometimes be obnoxious, um, they don't play by the rules. And this is often what the child's draft is. It's this messy, loud, unruly draft. <clears throat> About this first type of draft, Anne Lamott says, um, it's where you let it all pour out and then let it romp all over the place, knowing that no one is going to see it and that you can shape it later. You just let this childlike part of you channel whatever voices and visions come through and onto the page. If one of the characters wants to say, well, so what, Mr. Poopy Pants? You let her. No one is going to see it. If the kid wants to get into really sentimental, weepy, emotional territory, you let him. Just get it all down on paper because there may be something great in those six crazy pages that you would never have gotten to by more rational, grown-up means. There may be something in the very last line of the very last paragraph on page six that you just love, that is so beautiful or wild that you know that you now know what you're supposed to be writing about, more or less, or in what direction you might go. But there was no way to get to this without first getting through the first five and a half pages. And this is so true. And I think it's so freeing that a first draft or a first iteration of a creative piece can just be messy. Just let it be whatever it wants to be. And you can shape it later. And one thing that also brings comfort to me is that no one has to see it. If you want to be super brave and show your rough drafts, hey, do it. You know, I'm certainly am inspired when artists and writers I admire give peeks behind the curtain, say in their Facebook pages or Instagram. And it, again, it gives that feeling of you're not alone. So you certainly can share it, but there's no obligation for it. If you're really not happy with it or really embarrassed by it, no one's going to see it. So it's okay. Now, the second draft is what Lamont calls the up draft. This is really where you get into serious revision. You cut what's not necessary. And essentially, this is what my mentor Ellen did for me. And she was ruthless with this second draft, with the updraft. She took my first drafts and really, again, cut, reworded, crossed out, you know, drew arrows to show where things maybe should go or, you know, might be better. <clears throat> and part of it too, you know, you as I mentioned before, you may have to cut swaths of text that took you time to write, um, but sometimes you have to. Uh, a quote that's often attributed to writer William Faulkner is, kill your darlings. And that goes with any, again, any type of art form, anything that you work hard on, but it's just not working for a particular piece, it will hurt you to cut it. But if you do, if you kill those darlings, those things that are precious to you um, in service of the larger work, you and your work will be better for it. And, and it'll get easier as time goes on. 
And for the third draft, Anne Lamott calls it the dental draft. This is where you make the final superficial polishing changes. You know, are there any lingering spelling mistakes or grammar errors or, you know, can something be shaved down just a little bit or maybe cutting a sentence or, you know, so there is still revision, but nothing as drastic as the updraft. So in addition to Lamont, the rap rock band Linkin Park also talks about the revision process in a 15-minute video they made documenting the artistic process for making their second album, Meteora. And if you'd like to check it out, which I do highly recommend, it's only 15 minutes, um, and I like I was just enthralled by it. I thought it was so interesting, and I've included the links for that in the show notes if you want to take a look. One of the members says, you can cut what's not working for the song or the piece. He essentially talks about what Lamont does, but in a much more condensed form in an interview. What this member says is scrap half of it. You know, you may have to quote scrap half of it, whatever it is, the song, the sculpture, you know, whatever the case may be. And they also talk about and show some of the behind the scenes process um, that went into making the art of Meteor, the particular album that they're talking about. And it was so intriguing to me because at the time I was mostly writing, uh, not creating visual art. So to see the layers pulled back from the finished product um, and a medium I wasn't working on at the time was really cool. And it gave me insight, much like Lamont's piece, that every creative endeavor, it goes through some kind of transformation, some what I like to call the amorphous blob stage where the piece isn't really much of anything, but it's, it's on the page. And even that blob eventually becomes a finished product or piece that, you know, you've worked hard on and has evolved. And I actually heard this interview my senior year of college. So it was before my graduate program and really was revolutionary to me at the time because I'd always tried to use every idea I had in one piece, even if it wasn't working. So for example, if I was writing a piece about like an ex-boyfriend, right? What, (laughs) what 20 year old, you know, doesn't do that. Um, any metaphor or image or line that I came up with for that particular piece, even if it covered pages, I felt I needed to use every single piece of that, you know, otherwise the piece wouldn't be what I wanted it to be. But what hearing that Lincoln Park interview showed me is that you can cut stuff out and if need be, you can use it in a later piece. What's interesting though, is that when I looked back in preparation for this episode at the actual interview, I had thought, the members of Lincoln Park said, oh, you can always use what you cut later. But actually, they never said that. And I, you know, I looked at this over and over again thinking, no, they said that. This is what I've been working off of for years. So it's so interesting how we sort of superimpose or fill in the blanks of what we need based on what other people say. So this has been really helpful to me when something, a line or an image or something or color in a painting isn't working. I scrap it or draw over it or paint over it. 
but I'm okay with it. And what makes it easier is this sort of save as mentality. It doesn't mean I have to throw it out, put it in the garbage and never see it again unless I want to, but I can save what I cut in a sort of, in a save as folder. And if I want to, I can go back later and use those fragments in a different piece or even a number of pieces. So even things that I've worked on that don't see the light of day right now can be used later. And it makes me feel better about cutting things. But of course, if you just want to get rid of it and never use it again, if that makes you feel better, then that's fine too. Now to sort of wrap things up, I want to also mention that while I have given some ideas here for revision and for being ruthless, I ultimately want to say that what Ellen taught me was intuition. And this is difficult to teach or even to articulate, but through practice, you gain intuition of what is right for a particular piece, what works for you, what doesn't. Um, And after you create for a while, interestingly enough, you become more open to trying new techniques and playing, but you also know when something just isn't working. Um, And again, it's, it's a delicate balance and it's a skill that you hone by doing. Um, it's not like you can take a one hour webinar and have intuition, boom, bang, and you're done. It takes practice. And, you know, it comes with experience. Uh, and as I mentioned, you know, practice as well. So if you're thinking, well, I don't know what's working for a piece play. And the more you play and practice and explore, the stronger your intuition for what works for pieces and what doesn't work. Um, the more it will come and the stronger it will get. So don't be discouraged if you're stuck with a particular revision. Step away and come back to it later. Um, And as you practice, you may just realize you need to play a little bit more, try something different, or as Ellen would probably say, just scrap everything and start over. (laughs) But, But you can do a save as. In the next episode, I'll talk more about play and give some ideas of how to do this if you are stuck with a creative piece. So thanks so much for listening to episode 15. I hope you found some valuable insights in this episode. If you have any comments or questions or you just want to continue the discussion, reach out to me using the links in the show notes. And if you like the podcast, I would be honored if you would rate it. Thanks so much. I will see you guys tomorrow for the final installment of the Everything I Know About series.